We are in the midst of a series of messages that we began at the beginning of this year on living the dream and specifically focusing together on the life of Joseph. And this morning, I have a word for you that I believe is going to be a key to unlocking dreams in our lives. We're in the midst of a 40-day season of fasting and prayer and in conjunction with Lent, and we're asking for God to, to liberate His dreams over our lives, His purposes, His plans, His intentions for us, for our lives, for our families, for our workplaces. This week, we're praying around our, our church I want to invite you to come with me into the story of Joseph, into a, a crucial part of the story. And it's, it's crucial in that, you know, the scriptures devote four full chapters to telling this part of Joseph's story. And so I think that's significant. And so I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 42 with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, please take advantage of the Bible that's located right in front of you and turn to page 32 and you'll find Genesis 42. And I could summarize this story for you, but it's so powerful, and I think it's important. Again, we've been going through Saturate. We're just, we're just reading large chunks of the Word individually and then coming and sharing and talking about that together. So I'm going to do something which typically is uh, not recommended from uh, homiletics uh, preaching classes, but I'm going to read you four chapters of Scripture. In my sermon. All right. Thank you. All right. Jonathan's happy. Good. Thank you, brother. It is good because, man, this is better than anything that you're going to read or find or look at anywhere else. This is so incredible. All right. So if you remember where we're at in the story, um, in one day, Joseph was elevated from being in prison, in the dungeon. His dreams were literally in the dungeon. Being tempered and tested for years. Two full years passed where he was forgotten again, even after he had shared the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker uh, with them, interpreted those dreams for them. And last week we looked at being God's interpreter of dreams. If you haven't been with us, you can get... All of these messages on our website, or there's CDs that you can sign up for and get. I would encourage you to do so because there's been some lots of rich, rich ministry, not just through me, but through many other speakers here over these last several weeks. And God is speaking to us. So, anyway, Joseph has been in the dungeon, and then suddenly, in the midst of, of being there in the dungeon, Pharaoh has these different dreams, and he doesn't know how to interpret them. He doesn't know what to do. And so the baker comes to him and says, well, I remember, oh yeah, that's right. There was a guy that interpreted my dream two years ago. I was going to tell you about him then, but I forgot. But now I'll tell you, bring up Joseph. And so Joseph interprets the dream about the seven calves, the, the fat and the lean, and the seven stalks of grain, the, the rich and the, and, the, and the impoverished ones, and, and tells Pharaoh how God's going to bring seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. And so it came to be. And so Joseph 
was raised by Pharaoh from the place that, you know, he said, and Pharaoh says, well, I got to have somebody to, to oversee this. What's going to happen? Who can I find? Well, you interpreted the dream. You're obviously intelligent. You obviously hear from God. You obviously have the Spirit of God in you. So I'm going to invite you. And so Pharaoh became second. I mean, Joseph became second only to the Pharaoh in all of Egypt and begins then to rule under Pharaoh, rule over Egypt. And what he had spoken and said would happen, happens. There's seven years of abundance, followed by seven years of famine, and everybody from all the other countries begin to come to Egypt to buy grain from Egypt because Joseph, in his wisdom, had had them set aside storehouses preparing for the season of famine. We could have used a Joseph here a few years ago in America. Yes, maybe that would have been helpful. So, verse 56 of 41. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Chapter 42. So now, come into the story with me. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard there's some grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brothers, with the other because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan as well. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all of its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you're spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you. You are spies. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother and the rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. If you're not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you're spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you'll live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. Remember that? Crying out when he was in the cistern and they were, you know, we're going to kill him now. We'll just put him in the cistern without any water or food instead. That's okay. That's kind of... Not really killing him, but, you know, then we'll sell him into slavery. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon you. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? 
but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep and then turned back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to put each man's silver back in his sack and he gave them and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get his feed for his donkey. And he saw his silver in the mouth of the sack. My brother... Um, My silver has been returned, he said to his brother. Here it is, in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They said, The man who is Lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, We're honest men, we're not spies. We're twelve brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who is Lord over the land said to us, Well, this is how I'll know whether you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me so I'll know that you're not spies but honest men. Then I'll give your brother back to you and you can trade in, this land, trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. And when they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. And their father Jacob said to them, You've deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything's against me. Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. And trust him to my care. I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm comes on him, on the journey you're taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly, You cannot see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we'll not go down. Because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, well, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us, do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How are we to know? He would say, bring your brother down here. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, well, if it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags Take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm, a little honey, some spices, myrrh, some pistachio nuts, some almonds, some Oreos. Take, oh, I'm sorry, that was in my version. Okay. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, I'm bereaved. I, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver, and Benjamin also, and they hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare dinner. 
They're to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. Now, the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, we were brought here because of the silver that was put into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves, take our donkeys. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. Please, sir, they said, we came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks, and each of us found his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we brought it back with us. We've also brought additional silver with us to buy, silver with us to buy our food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. And then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, provided fodder for their donkeys, and prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon, because they had heard that they were there, that they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts that they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. And he asked them how they were. were. And then he said, How is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, Our servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed low to pay him honor. And as he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. And deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. And he went into his private room and he wept there. And after he'd washed his face, he came out and controlling himself said, Serve the food. And they served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves. Because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that's detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Now, we're halfway there. Joseph gave, gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sack with as much food as they can carry. Put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drink, drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you've done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to them, Why did my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will become my Lord's slave. Very well then, he said. Let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave, and the rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And at this they tore their clothes and they loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you've done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, Far be it for me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you, go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, Please, my Lord, let your servant speak a word to my Lord. Don't be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. 
my Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead and he's the only one of his mother's sons left and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. And when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what the Lord had said. My Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we can't go down only if our youngest brother is with us. Can we go? We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with you. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces, and I've not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with this boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he'll die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, If I do not bring him back to you, I'll bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as the Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. And he cried, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there have been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you and your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all that you have, I'll provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves and so can my brother Benjamin that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. And then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed his brothers and wept over them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. And when news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all of his officials were pleased. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this, load your animals, return to the land of Canaan, bring your father, your families back to me. I'll give you the best of the land of Egypt. You can enjoy the fat of the land. You are also directed to tell them, do this, take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives. Get your father, come. Never mind about your belongings, because the best of all Egypt will be yours. So the sons of Israel did this, and Joseph gave them carts as Pharaoh commanded. He also gave them provisions for the journey, and to each of them he gave new clothing. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver, five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his father, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread, other provisions for the journey, and sent his brothers away. And as they were leaving, he said to them, Don't quarrel on the way. So they went up 
out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. And they told him Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's the ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He didn't even believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts that Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I am convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning and our hearing of it. And may he speak into our lives today about this issue of liberating the dream. You see, Joseph had to face one final test. We've talked about how God takes and tempers and tests our dreams. In the, in the book of Psalms, it tells us that the word of the Lord tested Joseph until it was proved true. There was still a testing that needed to happen in Joseph's life until that word of the Lord to him about the dreams that the Lord had spoken to him was proved true. Do you remember this scripture in, early on in my reading here in 40, Genesis 42? Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And he remembered his dreams about them. So here we are, all of these years later. I'm thinking at this point, if I have my math right, Joseph is now about 39 years old. He first received his dream when he was 17. So 22 years have now passed. He's gone through various tests along the way. The seducers of the dream. The, um, the, the, the destroyers of the dream. Seeing the dreams in the dungeon. But there's one last test that now he has to make. And it is the passing of the rejection test. And in every one of our lives... We and our dreams and God's dreams for our lives are going to be tested in various ways. And one of the greatest tests that you and I will ever face in our lives is the test of rejection. The test of offense. The test of the temptation to bitterness. Remember, Joseph hasn't seen his brothers for 22 years. For 22 years, he's been growing in his stature, in his character, in who he is in the Lord. And I don't know, I don't know how it works in your life, but I'm guessing that Joseph probably had a fair amount of conversations in his head with his brothers in those 22 years. You ever had those conversations? I know you've had those. It's different having those conversations in your head and then when the person, the persons who have rejected you, who betrayed you, who abused you, who did hurt or harm, horror in your life stands there before you. This whole four chapters is all about this unfolding of this test in Joseph's life. 
And what I want to tell you about liberating the dreams of God in your life is this, that there is a key that will unlock, there's a key that will give you the answer to the rejection test and will unlock in a way that almost nothing else will unlock the dream of God for your life, in your life, to unfold. And that is the key of forgiveness. There's many scriptures, of course, that talk about forgiveness. Jesus talked about it frequently. One of the places he talks about it is in Mark chapter 11. He says, have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, we usually stop there. But it goes on and says, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Have faith in God. Pray in belief, in confidence, in who God is. You know, faith isn't a formula. It's not about reciting certain things. It's about a living relationship with the Lord. But recognize this. As you are praying, and as you are asking for mountains to be moved, the Holy Spirit begins to put some conviction in your heart that you are holding something. That there is, as it says in Hebrews, a root of bitterness. If there's an offense that you are hanging on to and gnawing on, it's time to let it go. It's time to release that. Now, I'm going to try to condense what I have to share with you this morning and make it very concise. But I want us to really clearly grasp and understand this issue of forgiveness. There's so much. I could preach a whole series on forgiveness this morning, and I won't do that. But I do want to give you some, I think, pretty significant keys to this. And I would invite you, if you've got some paper or something, write write some things down. Because I think this might help you as you press this out in your life, because this is really a key, and I believe that as we're going through this fasting time, one of the things that begins to be uncovered in our lives, I know, you know, God God uses fasting, allows us, because it begins to expose stuff in our hearts that he wants to reveal, and I think that this is an area God wants to maybe do some revelation in you and me around, all right? So, what I first want to do is talk about what forgiveness is not. Because there's a whole lot of misunderstandings around the issue of forgiveness. So I want to talk to you for just a moment to remind you about what forgiveness is not. First of all, forgiveness is not forgetting. If there's any conception of forgiveness, misconception of forgiveness that is the most common within Christian circles and within people in general, it is that somehow people equate in their mind forgiveness with forgetting. I must not have forgiven because I've not yet forgotten. How many of you have believed 
at one time or another that that's the case, all right? That forgiveness must mean forgetting. Slip up your hand. Don't be embarrassed if that's something you've... All right. I've thought that. The forgiveness means forgetting. Well, doesn't Psalm 25, say, 7 say, remember not the sins of my youth? And doesn't Jeremiah 31, 34 say, I will forgive them their wickedness and remember their sins no more? Doesn't God forget our sins? When it says he remembers their sins no more, doesn't that mean that God has forgotten our sin? One of the things that's important about understanding and interpreting Scripture is that you need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And we'll get to in a few moments other scripture that speak of God actually keeping account of our lives and our deeds. So what does it mean? How do I put those two things together? If God doesn't forget my sin, what does he do? If he doesn't actually expunge it from his memory, what does it mean that he doesn't remember it? What it means is this. He chooses not to use our sin against us because of forgiveness and the blood of Jesus Christ. Because of his gracious, compassionate favor for us. And so when we talk about forgiveness and forgetting, Forgetting may be the result of forgiveness. It may be that at some point we will actually forget. It happens. It just, it's become such a distant memory that that we don't even remember it anymore. But it is never the means of forgiveness. I've got to forget first before I can forgive. Don't labor under that false yoke. Because it will never happen. Does that make sense? Okay. Forgiveness is not overlooking the wrong. Oh, that's all right. I didn't pay any attention to it anyway. Oh, it sounds so spiritual. I'll just overlook that offense. Sounds really spiritual, but what it really is, it's superficial. It's just superficial. When we do it that way, overlooking is a blanket that doesn't heal. All it does is cover the wound. And guess what? Life has a way, and the enemy has a way of pulling the blanket back off. And the wound is still there. So, Forgiveness is not just about overlooking the wrong. Forgiveness is not excusing the wrong. Joseph never said, Oh, it's okay, guys. I was just a teenager. I know you didn't really mean anything that day. You threw me down into the cistern. I know you were just playing around when you turned me over to those Midianites. No, in Genesis 50, 20, he says, You meant evil against me. Forgiveness doesn't just excuse the wrong. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. God doesn't just simply excuse our wrong. That's not the same as forgiveness, true forgiveness. Understanding? Getting this? Forgiveness is not psychoanalyzing the wrongdoer in order to explain the wrong away. Well, you got to remember, Grandpa was an alcoholic, Mom became a neurotic, and therefore, all of the things, you know. It's helpful to understand. I mean, when you are, I mean, it's helpful to understand. But you know what? Here's the thing. We somehow think that if we can understand it, if we know why this happened to us, it's, here's what it is. I've, I had this revelation this morning as I was thinking through sharing with you this morning. It's really an issue of control. Because if we can have an answer to it, if we can answer the why, then we somehow have control over what happened and then we can tuck it away here and somehow, you know, it's not taking, you know, we, we have that illusion that we have power over. But sometimes there just really is no answer to the why. Jesus said, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing when he was on the cross. He didn't try to explain, you know, he didn't go into all kinds of explanations of why they were doing what they were doing. And, you know, you got to understand that they're part of this religious system and all these things in the Roman Empire. Blah, blah. You know, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Here's a biggie. Forgiveness is not taking the full blame upon ourselves. This is particularly an issue for those who are vulnerable and powerless and where there's power differentials. We could talk about this a long time. but So this is often the case. And this is no, this is partly because of the society we live in, but this is often the case for women and for children. They take the blame upon themselves. I must have done something. A healthy human being, a whole human being, a, 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 a child of God recognizes that when we are responsible, we must own our contribution to an issue, yet we don't carry another's responsibility, enabling them to avoid their responsibility. So forgiveness is not taking the full blame on ourselves. Forgiveness is not peace at any price. This is a really big one, people, particularly for those of us and I'm like I'm in the Encyclopedia Britannica under conflict avoidant people. Okay, there's my picture, right up there. There is a difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. And a lot of us have settled for peacekeeping. The problem with peacekeeping is. The war's 
inevitably start up again, don't they? We're going to send the peacekeepers in to whatever war-torn country. They keep the peace for a little while, and as soon as they back away, what happens? Because true peace was not made. Romans 12, we must commit to overcoming evil with good, as it says in Romans 12.1. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Peacemaking is a much harder but much more fruitful thing. We overcome the evil, not by peacekeeping, but by peacemaking, which requires something significant on our behalf. All right. So that's what forgiveness... One last one. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Sometimes we think that, oh, I've only forgiven when I am reconciled to another person completely. You know, things are just back to the way they've always been before the conflict took place or whatever that is. Forgiveness is a step in that direction, yet it requires repentance and a step on the other person's part as well. Reconciliation is a two-way bridge. I can't walk that bridge myself alone and expect reconciliation to happen. It says in the scripture, as far as it is up to you, live at peace with all men. As far as it is up to you. We take ownership for our responsibility, but others have to take responsibility for theirs. All right. Here's what forgiveness is. We're doing really well. Thank you for your patience. We're getting close, so hang in there. Let me just tell you what forgiveness is. In light of some of the things that it's not, and in light of other things that the Scripture explains to us. Forgiveness is facing the specific wrong done to us. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers? He said to them, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Yep, I'm the one that you sold as a slave. Forgiveness faces the specific wrong that has been done to us. If we're going to, you know, it isn't just enough to sort of bring a person, you know, bring a person's uh, face before your mind and sort of just wave a magic hand over them and say, well, I just forgive you of everything. Forgiveness faces the specific wrong that's been done. Forgiveness is facing your hurt and pain. It is not a a sin to acknowledge your emotions. Here are some common feeling words which you might connect with specific situations. Rejection, humiliation, comparison, deprivation, neglect, injustice, unfairness, put-downs, cruelty, brutality, betrayal, abandonment. Those are real things, real emotions. And if we're going to go through the hard work of forgiveness, we need to face our hurt and pain. Three times in our scripture, 
Joseph wept. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out, looked for a place to weep. He went to his private room and he wept there. That's deep emotion, people. Forgiveness has to connect to your soul. It's not just an intellectual exercise. But it involves all the parts of your soul. Your mind, your emotions, your will. Forgiveness is facing our resentments. We have to face them as they are. Ephesians 4. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Here's the point of this. You have to face... It isn't enough to say, oh, I'm not bitter. No, I'm not bitter. Mm-mm. I'm really not angry. I'm just not. I don't struggle with that at all. Face it. Be real. Stop pretending. Oh, it's all well, it's fine. So forgiveness is facing our resentments, and then it's facing the cross of Christ. That's why our worship today has been so such a setup and so beautiful. And the words we've heard and the, and the encouragements we've received from members of the body around this. Because it goes on in verse 32 of 4. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. When God forgave us our sin through Christ's death, it was because God in Christ took onto himself and into himself the guilt and the punishment and the shame of our sins. These should have been ours. We deserve to suffer for them. These. Instead, God took them into his very own being and by suffering for them was able to forgive us without overlooking and whitewashing our sins to a much lesser degree, but in exactly the same way when we forgive someone who has wronged or hurt us, we are taking the pain and the shame that they deserve to suffer onto and into ourselves. All forgiveness is suffering love found for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the golden rule of forgiveness is not do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but it is do unto others as God in Christ has done for you. Because when we face the cross, and in the light then of the cross, those resentments and the pain and the wounds that we have experienced, it tells us in Hebrews that for the joy set before Him, Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame. So it is for us. Two last things. Forgiveness is living with the consequences of another's sin against us. This is so hard. So hard. To live with the consequences of another's sin against us. Sometimes, as in the case of Stephen, 
In the New Testament, while they were stoning him, Jesus prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. See, here's the deal about forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't always result in everything, all of the pieces getting put back together in the same day they were before the sin happened to us. Because it's like stone thrown into the water and the ripple effects still go out. So part of what forgiveness is, is it's living with the consequences of that. And yet not choosing to hold on to that. And that's where forgiveness is a crisis of the will. I've told this story many times, but it's so powerful, I want to remind you of it one more time. It's the story of Corey Ten Boom, who had met one of her former captors when she was it held in a concentration camp during uh, World War II under Nazi Germany and she came out of you know out of the and she met this man who had been one of her former captors and she was absolutely totally undone by that and she didn't know what to do and she went to her pastor and said pastor I don't know what to do every time I see his face everything that's been done to me I remember and I simply can't do it I can't forgive him And her pastor wisely took her outside of the church building and he pointed up at the bell tower and he said, each day the sexton comes to ring the bell to call us into worship. And when he rings the bell, he hangs onto the rope and he pulls on the rope and he pulls on the rope. But there comes a point when he stops pulling on the rope and he lets go of the rope. And when he lets go of the rope, the bell continues to ring, but it gets quieter and less frequent until finally it stops. Corey, forgiveness is letting go of the rope. It's a deliberate choice of your will to let go of the rope. I'm not going to keep pulling on that resentment and that anger and that bitterness and that offense and that unforgiveness any longer. Watch yourself. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you, seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. That's a good place to have increase of faith. Last one. Sorry, I told you two earlier and it was three. Forgiveness is a process. It's a process. We read this earlier this morning. As part of our Lenten meditation, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over these, all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It's a process, people. It's a clothing ourselves. It's a deliberate choice and an ongoing work It's both point and process in that you let go of the rope at a certain point, but the process of that being worked out in your life will continue as Christ works in your heart. I want to close with a story. I've just finished a a book uh, that I've been wanting to read for a long time, and somebody in the congregation had a copy of it, and I saw it and devoured it. They lent it to me. It's called... um, it's called uh, Unbroken, 
by Laura Hillenbrand. It's a, it's a story of a World War II, um, a, a man who'd been an Olympic runner, a young man who then um, was in World War II, became, went in through this incredible ordeal, um, was the true story, on the seas for 47 days in a raft uh, after his plane was shot down, then taken in captivity in Japan. And uh, was horrible. I mean, went through. I mean, as I'm reading this, I'm just inside. I'm just. It's very difficult to read and hear what he had gone through. And it's 400 pages long, and about 380 of it, you're going, oh, oh, oh. But in the end, there's redemption. It tells the story of how he gave him his heart to Christ at a Billy Graham crusade. And several years later, he had the opportunity to go back to Japan to meet with those who had been his captors and abusers. And there was one in particular, one man in particular, who was incredibly cruel, who had done unspeakable things to prisoners, and particularly had done unspeakable things to Louis Zamperini, Zamperini, who is the man here. He was in, had been invited to prepare uh, to uh, to take and run with the Olympic torch when the Olympic Games were going to be held in Japan. And so, as he was preparing to return to Japan to carry the Olympic torch, Louis sat at his desk for hours thinking. And then he began to write something to this particular captain. He had thought he was dead for all these years, and then they'd found that he was alive. And so he wrote this letter. He said to Matashuro Wantanami, as a result of my... Li- listen to this in light of what I've just shared you, with you. Listen to the principles. They're embedded right here. As a result of my prisoner of war experience, under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was the tension and stress of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner of war, but also as a human being, were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble. But thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to and love replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Tsugamo Prison. I asked then about you and was told that you had probably had committed harikari, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you would also become a Christian. Listen to that simple words. And so on the morning of January 22nd, 1998, Louis Zamperini, four days short of his 81st birthday, stood in a swirl of white beside a road flanked in bright drifts. His body was worn and weathered, his skin scratched with lines mapping the miles of his life. His old riot of black hair was now a translucent scrim of white, but his blue eyes still grew sparks, and on the finger 
of his right hand, a scar was still visible, the last mark that the green, the green hornet had left in the world. And at last it was time. Louis extended his hand, and in it was placed the Olympic torch. And his legs could no longer reach and push as they once had, but they were still sure beneath him. And he raised the torch and bowed and began running. That's the picture of forgiveness. To raise the torch of Christ's love. Bow our head and run. 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 The race that has been set before us. Worship team, come on up. We're going to close with an old hymn that I love. I grew up singing. I think we grew up singing it almost every Sunday in the church I grew up in. But it's one which still speaks to my heart. And I think is appropriate in light of what I've shared here this morning about forgiveness. Is as we step into this next, the second half of our season of fasting and prayer, I believe. I believe that this is a crucial step on that journey of seeing those dreams fulfilled in our lives. And so I'm going to invite you, if you want to, Matt just said, I was guessing between one of two, two hymns because we grew up in this. Matt and I had known each other since we were five years old, if you didn't know that, my wife and I. So we grew up in the same church, so we grew up, whoa, singing the same hymns. <laughs> and uh, pastor would always invite us to come forward, usually for salvation. And this morning, I would invite you, if you're here this morning, and you don't know Jesus, you don't know the forgiveness that we've talked about that's extended through Christ into our lives by God. You can know that today. And I want to invite you into that place of salvation today. We've got some people right up front that would love to pray with you. Got people right here, Stephen Casey Ugin and Kathy Astrike, and right here, Mary Lynn and Denise would love to. If you want to come and receive prayer this morning for salvation, would you just come and find them? And they'd love to just show you the way to walk into forgiveness in Jesus today. There's a lot more of us perhaps here this morning who've got some things that the Lord's just pointing a spotlight on. Places that we need to insert the key of forgiveness this morning. You've walked through the rejection test, and now it's time to pass the test. It's time to let go of the rope. It's time to take that first step. Let's stand together, and as we do, I'm going to open up the altar if you want to come. Then I'm going to give a prayer of benediction after we've sung through the hymn. Come. Just before we do that next verse, you know, I don't want to manipulate us in any way. I just want to share that there are moments in life where just taking a step can really bring important release into your lives. I know it's been true in my life. So I just want you to know there's no shame here this morning. If you're, you know, (laughs) the whole message is about being released from that. 
So if there is something that you're just aware of, that you're just holding on to, just let that yoke go off this morning. Be free. Come. Verse 3. Here we go. Just open our hands. Lord Jesus, this morning, we just want to surrender to You, Lord. Anything within us that is holding on to something against a brother and sister in Christ. Might be a spouse, might be a child, might be a parent, might be a friend, might be a co-worker, might be a neighbor. Lord Jesus, I just pray this morning that just a fresh breeze will blow through our hearts today. That, Lord, living waters would just flow, living waters of forgiveness, Lord Jesus. Lord, as you have forgiven us, we ask you to forgive us, Lord. We repent of our own sin. We repent, Lord, of the judgments we've held against others. Lord Jesus, we just pray that you would cleanse us now and liberate us so that your dreams for our lives and our life together might be fulfilled. Your plans, your purposes, your intentions, your heart towards us. That it might be clean and clear, Lord Jesus. Bless. And now with hands open, I pray that you would be filled afresh today with the immeasurable love of God the Father. The irresistible mercy and grace of Jesus Christ the Son. The inexhaustible strength and power, comfort and hope of the Holy Spirit be with you and yours as you go from this house to your house, sent to make disciples of all nations. Go with His goodness on your lives. With the banner of His favor flying over your life. Until we gather again, either in this house or in our eternal home, I bless you, people of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Go in His peace and mercy and grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.